Welcome to I'm Game with Fred Croner. Today I am joined by Mike Kuhn, Montesquieu native, who is the Director of Sports and Events at Visit Champaign County. Uh, but more than that, uh, I want to talk to him, uh, talk to Mike about his side gig, which uh, for the last quarter century, he has been on the uh, broadcast team for Illinois women's basketball and for the last four years has done the play-by-play. -play. Uh, so first of all, Mike, uh, welcome. Thanks, Fred. It's always good to talk to you. Well, I want to talk about the uh, the Final Four and so on and so forth. But before we get to that, I want to go back to a game in January that uh, you had the, the privilege of, uh, of uh, broadcasting. That was an Illinois-Iowa game. The Illini beat Iowa 90-86. to Caitlin Clark had 30 points for Iowa. And that was one of just three losses that Iowa had uh, after January 1st. So talk a little bit about that game, your memories, and and uh, and, and and so on and so forth. Well, I think first off, it really told me and, and the rest of the program that uh, the eyeballs were on Illini women's basketball because, as you know, it was not only January, it was New Year's Day uh, on a Sunday opposite the NFL uh, with a program that had not won, you know, had, had a lot of history of winning in the last 20 years. And we have drew a crowd of well over 5,000. That's a legitimate number, a lot of walk-ups. So there was a lot of interest. Obviously, you mentioned Caitlin Clark and, um, you know, everybody wanting to come to watch her play. But certainly there was some interest in Illini women's basketball and how good they were. So I think uh, the crowd definitely played a lot into it. And it was probably the best or one of the best games that Illinois played all year. It really demonstrated the fact that they, you know, their, their strength of the guards with Genesis Bryant and Makaira Cook and Adalia McKenzie, you know, came into play. And when you play Iowa, you have to outscore them. As, as LSU found out in the national championship game, when Iowa scored 85 in the national championship game, still lost. Iowa scored 86 against Illinois, but the Illini were able to score enough points to beat them. Caitlin Clark fouled out with about a little over a minute to go and uh, made some big shots down the stretch. But you know, I think beyond just the, the game itself and the win, which uh, turned out to be a, a much bigger win with Iowa getting all the way to the national championship game, it was just the atmosphere at State Farm Center that continued then to grow. And a couple of weeks later, we played Indiana, when they were in the top five um, midweek, we had an even bigger crowd midweek uh, against Indiana. So, um, you know, that was really the signal that Illinois women's basketball, you know, had had made it to the certain degree that they were getting the interest. You and I over the years have certainly seen some not so good women's basketball, but I would think uh, the landscape seems to be changing. I mean, not only with what uh, the Illini did this year under Shauna Green, but uh, certainly Iowa representing the, the Big Ten and getting to the title game. And then, of course, LSU, which put up 100 or I mean, yeah, LSU putting up 102 points in the title game. Talk about some of the changes you've seen in women's basketball over these past few years. Um, Personality wise. There's certainly a lot of players that uh, are heavy on social media. Certainly, uh, two years ago, of, of the players that were in the NCAA tournament, men or women, nobody had a bigger following than Paige Beckers of UConn. And so the advent of social media and now NIL, these players are known quantity. Um, so that has really helped draw the interest. But I think... The, the, the level of play over the last 10, 15, 20 years 
has really improved as well. And, and that's, it's an entertaining brand of basketball. It's not an above the rim game primarily that we see on the men's side, but fundamentally, uh, I mean, it's Teresa Grinch used to say to be a good basketball player, you need to know how to dribble, pass and shoot. And there's many more players in the, in our game today that know how to do those three things and know how to do it well. And, and several uh, players that can do all of those things. And so um, it's just made, it's made the inner, made the game a lot more entertaining uh, with social media. More people are aware of it. TV uh, there's more TV coverage through big 10 network and ESPN. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of factors out there, but certainly the quality of the game than it, you know, than it ever has been. When you, you talk about the uh, the TV coverage, and not only is there the coverage, but people are watching that. I, I was staggered when I heard, I believe I have these stats right, that during the national semifinal game on ESPN this year, the women's game drew 66% more viewers than, than a year ago. I mean, that to me, that's just a mind-boggling change in that short of a period of time. Yeah, and you really, you look at that game, uh, it peaked at over 10 million fans that were watching. Uh, there were more fans that watched that game, then the Daytona 500, then the Sugar Bowl, then the Orange Bowl, then any NBA or NHL game. So there, there was just a handful. You take the NFL out of the equation, which is its own uh, animal. Um, there weren't many sporting events in the last 12 months that drew more fans, eyeballs on, in TV than that particular game. You know, I'm sure a lot of it is the the appeal of, of Caitlin Clark, who, you know, now has been named the, the Wooden Award winner as Player of the Year for Women's Basketball. But I guess what I'm wondering is, is this. I mean, there have certainly been good players, good women's players over the years. I, I think back Stephanie White at, uh, at, at Purdue, uh, Candace Parker, who played in Illinois at, uh, at Naperville, uh, Tamika Catchings, uh, and then just a whole slew of outstanding WNBA players. What is it about Caitlin Clark that there, there's the appeal now with her that maybe wasn't there for, for some of the, the women in the past? Well, I mean, I think uh, right before Caitlin Clark, there was Sabrina Unescu uh, from Oregon, who, uh, you know, she was close with Kobe Bryant. Um, and so I think Kobe Bryant really brought, uh, you know, the, uh, the interest to the women's game and to Sabrina Unescu. So I, Caitlin Clark is a very similar type player. Um, you know, there's a lot of comparisons to her and Steph Curry and just the ability to, uh, to hit what they call logo threes. So the, her average three point shot this year made uh, was over 25 feet. So that you don't you don't see that even on the men's game where somebody's is pulling up from just past half court and and hitting it at, at a pretty good accuracy. So there's just um, she's a she's must see TV. Uh, you know, I anytime she's on, uh, you know, I try to I try to watch just because. And it's not only the shooting; if it were just the fact that uh, she was hitting all these shots, but. Uh, she finds her teammates, um, you know, it's, last year she was the uh, first player ever to lead the country in both scoring and assists. So she's an incredible passer and uh, getting her teammates involved. But uh, she, she has a type of game that, that uh, sells tickets. I mean, they had 6,200 season tickets for Iowa women's basketball this last year, and, and their last several games were sellouts. 
I think if I remember something like five triple doubles this year too. So, I mean, it shows she's doing a lot more than, than just scoring. I mean, she's keeping her teammates happy. She's passing the ball, like you say, uh, rebounding and, and just uh, like you say, a very fun player to, to watch. Yeah. And then, you know, as I mentioned, made the comparison to Steph Curry is that she's somebody that has the ball in her hands a lot. So she gets the rebounds. She brings the ball. There's no need for an outlet pass. She just can dribble it up the floor. And then it's, you know, it's almost like a video game, her trying to find teammates uh, or if they try to double, uh, you know, if they, if uh, Monica Stanano, for instance, comes up and sets a screen and they try to double and they bring the, the, their opposing post player up, a Sonata will just roll to the basket and Caitlin Clark can find her for the layup. So there's been a lot of uh, talk, a lot of controversy, I guess, about the technical foul called on Clark in the, in the championship game. What, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a, a few things that were unfortunate about the weekend and, you know, I'm not one to say uh, you, you have to do whatever you can with, you know, 10 million fans. They came to watch Caitlin Clark. I mean, if, if, it, if there's legitimate fouls or whatever, then that's just all part of the game. But, you know, uh, they, they had a pool reporter uh, that went in and talked to the officials about that particular call. And it was essentially was a delay of game technical foul against um, it was against Iowa. They had, you know, they had the one warning where they had, you know, batted the ball after the ball went through the net. So once you have your warning, then the next thing is a technical foul. So technically that was, that was the call. And um, unfortunately it went to the individual who committed that, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that, especially in a national championship game, I think you could probably, you could probably overlook. It's not one of those nobody, you know, she didn't say anything or wasn't demonstrative or anything like that. I would have liked to have seen that just, um, you know, I want, you don't want to ignore the, you know, the rules of the rules, but that's one of those things that you have to be very technical to call that. Well, and I think, you know, the point is if you look, you know, up and down the court, whether it's in the women's game or, or the men game, men's game on almost every possession, you, you can find a foul to call. So, I mean, there's, sure. there's that are not being called. And so for this particular one to, to be called, you know, like, you know, like you say, and what the, the official explained afterwards, you know, yes, it was, it was the correct call to make, but maybe it's one that you just let go in, in that particular situation. And uh, I don't think you're going to convince people one way or the other. I mean, the purists will say, well, you know, that's the rule. They'd been, they'd been warned. So the next time it had to be a technical foul. It's just that plain and simple, but I, right. I it is that plain and simple. <laughs> No, no. I mean, and I think that's the sentiment that, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of uh, comments about fouls, both in that South Carolina, Iowa game and in this game. Uh, but actually the fouls were pretty even. The unfortunate thing on Iowa was they were concentrated on their three best players, McKenna Warnock, uh, Caitlin Clark and Monica Sanano, but the old, the fouls between LSU and Iowa were pretty even Um you know, the unfortunate thing from, from Iowa's perspective is that they were concentrated on those three players. So you were in Dallas. Talk about the uh, the atmosphere around the, the Final Four, just what you saw this year. And, and then now you've been to, I think this was the 11th Final Four. How, yeah. how different this year? How was the atmosphere and everything different this year than some of the years past? Well, I think all four teams had huge uh, fan bases. Now, uh, so for the first time this year, the Big Ten tournament was at Minneapolis. And uh, it had been in Indianapolis forever and ever. And it was too bad from my perspective, because this was the one year that were, you know, Illinois 
was good again and uh, would have brought a lot of fans. And of course, Indiana was number two in the country. They would have brought a lot of fans, but uh, Minneapolis, they had record crowds in the Big Ten tournament. It was all Iowa fans in 9,600 at the Big Ten championship game. So they, they, they brought a ton of fans. South Carolina brought a ton of fans. LSU uh, is a, I mean, they are a loyal fan base, no matter the sport. You know, football, basketball, softball, whatever they, you know, they brought a ton of people in Virginia tech. They have uh, developed a good fan base. And so all four teams are represented. There's been a lot of times where uh, it's been heavy Yukon. Um, and then the other teams that aren't used to being there, they don't bring the crowds, but I think all four teams were very well represented. Um, and the, in, the, on the street, the uh, this ticket prices for the on the street, you know, if you want to buy a ticket on the street, actually were higher for the women's final four this year than it was for the men's final four. So, you know, a lot of factors. Uh, the, there were teams and players that fans were interested on the women's side, maybe not so much on the men's side. And you know, it's a smaller venue, a venue about nineteen thousand plus versus the football stadium. But uh, there was. The interest, of, especially the Iowa-South Carolina game, but then, you know, the, the, the many personalities, um, just just a great, great fan following from all four teams that made the Final Four. So talk a little bit about, if you would, the, the reason you were at the Final Four, you're part of the media coordination team. Talk a little bit about what you and, and the other team members do and some of your responsibilities and, and how that has shifted over the years. Yeah, so um, I um, am a volunteer. The, the NCAA has a, some full-time staff, uh, but they to put on an event like this, they don't have the, the full-time staff to be able to do it. So they lean on a lot of, of uh, volunteers from the sport, you know, in this particular case, the media relations team, a lot of former sports information people, former sports information people that they can rely on to do a lot of the key duties like uh, moderate press conferences and deal with uh, seating charts and, and photos and uh, locker room stewards. I have sort of, uh, I volunteered for the first time in 2009. Um, the woman that was in charge had been there for about 25 years, was a former SID in Tam Flarep, and she knew my affinity for uh, stats and notes and things like that. So I'm the primary notes person um, so I kind of lead that team, but there's, there's so many other things, um, that we do as a media coordination team. Um, you know, I've moderated press conferences last year, um, when Paige Beckers and Aaliyah Boston, uh, moderated those press conferences on the, the day before the championship game. Um, we were running around getting credential. This was a, this was the largest credentialed final four ever. There were nearly 500 media. So uh, just helping them do all those, those little things um, to make the tournament a success. Of course, for a lot of people, that will probably be pretty overwhelming, but you have the background in sports information working in that department at the U of I for a number of years. So, so talk a little bit about, you know, it almost probably feels like a second nature when you're, when you're back on that assignment again, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, when I left, you know, I was in sports information for nearly 20 years, 14 of which or at the U of I, and it was a tough decision for me to leave. Uh, you know, it's in my blood, um, particularly on the college side, uh, but through radio, you mentioned, and, and public address announcing and, and, and working the Final Four and some other things, it enables me to, to kind of stay in the game, if you will, 
uh, keep my network of uh, media relation folks uh, fresh. So it's always fun to kind of go back and put on that hat once again, even though that's not what I do full time anymore. So if you would talk a little bit about what uh, what it was like for you just to, to be there at the final four. I mean, obviously you're working it, but I mean, can you kind of just take it in and, and enjoy it and and, you know, realize what a special privilege it is? Or are you just kind of, you know, always going from point A to point B and having something you need to do? There are a couple of times, uh, you know, once we you know, get ready for the starting lineups where I'm set to go and I can kind of just uh I've got a few minutes where I can kind of take it in. I, I, I guess it's kind of like the, uh, the astronauts that go into space where they're, they, the, uh, they always advise, you know, look out the window at the earth. Right. Uh, but there's got so many things to do that there's uh, you know, there's not a lot of time, but there is some time just to kind of to appreciate the fact that you're at the final four, which is a really cool experience. And to be able just to, to kind of take all that there is in. And certainly this year was as, as big an anticipated Final Four as there's been in some time. And, and so I wanted to make sure that I kind of felt what that experience was like. And I was I had some time to do that. So you hoping to continue doing this in the future as a volunteer at the Final Four? Yeah, yeah when I left, they're like, you're going to be in Cleveland next year, right? So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm hoping, you know, I, as long as my wife lets me lets me off this, we, we've kind of made this into a family vacation uh, if you will, my wife and daughter were down there as well. So in between all my duties there, we we were able to take in uh, things to do in Dallas. But yeah, I mean, they they certainly want to have me back. And and uh, I see uh, I'm, I'm guessing I will be in Cleveland in 2024. And, you know, Cleveland is on my uh, to do list sometime. I want to get there to see the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So maybe that will happen. Uh, well, there you go. Probably not next year, at least not at this particular time, but that uh, is a good list. So. <laughs> yeah, well, they have the venues set through 2031. I know there's been some talk about uh, maybe combining men's and women's Final Four. That certainly won't happen until until 2020, uh, 2032 at the earliest. But, um, you know, I think this event, my personal opinion is this event stands on its own. It, uh, it would be nice to maybe piggyback the interest in the men's final four. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of echo the sentiments that Gina or Emma had that, uh, you know, this is a big enough event to kind of stand on its own. I like the fact that they're, they're using March Madness. It feels like, you know, uh, the men and the women, there's, there's, especially in the final four, when you're playing on opposite days, the folks that are interested in the men, hopefully will take in the women's game. But, you know, I'm hoping that they have, have it in in the same bit in in a different city than they had the men's final four. I want to go back here with you for a little bit, probably further back than uh, I would like to think it really was. But I remember covering Monticello High School basketball games. I would see this young man sitting over uh, on the bleachers on the opposite side of where I was. It had a tape recorder and was talking into the tape recorder. And I would subsequently learn that uh, that, that was you uh, and you. Yeah some practice for what you wanted to do. So talk a little bit about uh, uh, that kind of start that you had and, and just knowing at, at such a young age what you wanted to do, because I mean, really, that's kind of like me. I started writing for a weekly newspaper when I was in eighth grade. So I, I knew what I wanted back then as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the earliest that I can remember is like seven or eight. Uh, I knew, you know, sports broadcasting was something that I was that I wanted to do. And as you said, I have cassette tapes of me at that age and maybe a little older doing play-by-play. -play. And I had some friends 
that were interested at the time as well. And we take turns, take each doing a quarter or so, but uh, the bugs, you know, started at that age. I got to, um, I, I have, I have to really thank Roy Clevin at uh, NWVLJ in Monticello. I went to him as a, as a sophomore in high school and said, you know, at that point, the games were not, uh, the high school games weren't on the radio. And I asked for an opportunity to first, I had a, a uh, 30 minute talk show um, on Saturday morning during the season. And then uh, was able to do Monticello high school basketball and football for two years. So, and that was, you know, over the air. Uh, he told me, uh, he says, uh, you know, right now they didn't, he didn't see an interest from advertisers. And he said, if you can, if you can round up the advertisers, we'll let you do the games. And so I went as a, 15, 16 year old went around town to the banks and the car dealerships and the grocery stores and the hardware stores and everything like that. And was able to sell them on the idea that they should sponsor Monticello Athletics. And I got enough sponsors um, to be able to fulfill my end of the bargain and then uh, was able to do the games on the radio. <laughs> That's a great story. So, so talk about, uh, you know, you were on the broadcast team for the Illini women for so many years. How, how difficult was the transition when you went from being more the, you know, the color commentary guy to the, to the guy doing the play-by-play? -play? What was that like for you? Well, as you said, I uh, knew from a young age that I wanted to do radio. Um, I never have had a full-time radio job, but my real passion was doing the play-by-play. And so, um, you know, I had an occasion. So Dave Lone was a longtime play-by-play -play voice for Illini women's basketball since the you know late 80s. And uh, I joined him in 1998. At the time, that was one of the duties of the sports information director for the, for the uh, school or for the program was that you were then the analyst for uh, radio broadcasts. And so for me, that was just a natural as a radio, somebody, I went to school, I have a, you know, a broadcast major and um, was able to do that um, and be on the radio as the analyst. Even when I stopped working with the women's basketball team full time, I, you know, asked Kent Brown, can I, can I, can I still travel? Um, and so he gave me the okay to do that. And, um, and just, it, you know, when I, Dave was a little older than me, um, and I knew that at some point he would, you know, he, he built his house up in Michigan, and so I was happy to step into that role, but that's that's a more natural fit for me is, is, is that side. I mean, I did the analyst for a long time and, and enjoyed teaming with Dave on that, but I, you know, I really enjoy doing the play-by-play. -play. Are there any particular announcers or commentators that you kind of pattern yourself after and that you, you really admire and, and, and uh, you know, try to emulate? I mean, I think growing up, uh, listening to Illinois games, Jim Turpin was, you know, somebody that I really appreciated. Um, I also, you know, as a Cubs fan, uh, caught the tail end of Jack Brickhouse's career and really enjoyed um, listening to him. Um, I actually, um, speaking of the high school days and even before, I began going to a lot of the games at the Charleston Holiday Tournament. And WLBH radio and Mattoon at the time did all the games. And so I listened, if I wasn't at the game, I listened, uh, you know, there was uh, Ken Waddell and Dave Kessinger. And so I think a lot of, of, you know, my style or whatever, my, my attention to detail comes from listening to those two guys doing the Charleston holiday tournament. 
they did all 24, 26 games. And so, um, you know, when I, before I was old enough to drive to Charleston to go to the games, I listened to all those games on the, on the radio. And uh, so those were some of the folks that I looked up to. Well, Ken and Dave are people I know personally, so they, they are absolutely good role models and, and good people and good announcers. I, I didn't really get to hear them that much because I was usually at the games, but I would hear sure. what they were saying sitting kind of beside them. Uh, well, Mike, before I let you go today, I want to just ask you a little bit more about Illinois women's basketball. I don't think a year ago at this time, people would have, you know, expected that they would, you know, come in, have win over 20 games this year. So considering how much they've improved from last year until this year, what, what do you think is possible for next year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the we, we saw the model with Indiana. So Indiana, uh, these same players won the WNIT one year, then was an eight or nine seed in the NCAA tournament. And eventually that's piggybacked into being a number one seed in the uh, NCAA. And it's the reason is that they had players that were there together for three and four years, you know, the three-year starters. That's what we're seeing. So we saw in Iowa is that the players there have, been together for they've started for over 90 games and I think we're setting up to have a very similar situation at Illinois uh, especially at the at the guard perspe perspective with Makaira Cook Genesis Bryant uh, I, I think uh, there's a good chance Jada Peebles comes back for one more year and we'll have two more years with Kendall Bostic so that core group has a chance to you know start a lot of games together um, you know obviously we saw in the NCAA tournament game uh, having to go against Jessica Carter that, um, you know, it'd be nice to get some size to have a real strong 6'4", 6'5", uh, post player. Um, and so I would guess that that's one of the uh, things that Shauna Green and her staff are trying to get through the transfer portal. Uh, we've got some dynamic guards that are coming in. Gretchen Dolan uh, averaged nearly 38 points a game uh, in high school, uh, playing um, in a small school in, in near Buffalo. Uh, Corey Allen is one of the, you know, she's a dynamic player coming in. So I think the, the core group will be together, but I think there's some pieces to be able to get to where Illinois wants to get. Uh, they'll have to get to, to, you know, to be a sweet 16, you know, type team, a big 10 contender. There's still, there's still some work to do, but, you know, honestly, the, with, uh, you know, Shauna Green in her first year being able to go from seven wins to 22, the sort of the bar has been set. Second year at LSU, Kim Mulkey wins a national championship. So the turnaround time on some of these uh, rebuilds has gotten a lot uh, shorter, especially with the transfer portal. No doubt about it. We've been talking today to uh, with Mike Kuhn, who's on the uh, broadcast crew for Illinois women's basketball, now does the play-by-play -play and uh, also works as a director of sports events at Visit Champaign County and had the opportunity to be at the recent women's final four in a working capacity. Mike, before I let you go, anything else uh, that you would like to add today? No, I mean, we're just looking forward to, you know, it's uh, the women's basketball season seems like a long season from November, early November to early April, but uh you know, it's one of those, we'll be counting down until uh, November to, to get that season started again. I think the interest and the season tickets, uh, you know, will, will continue to grow for the Illini team and for, for women's basketball in general. I'm, I'm anxious to see what uh, things will be like in four or five years uh, in this game. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it too. Certainly exciting times ahead. Well, again, Mike, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate sure. it. I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thanks, Fred.